This episode is sponsored by Down to Earth Ice Teas. Our functional super teas are made from organic super herbs and adaptogens and contain no sugar, no preservatives, no food colorings, and range from only zero to 10 calories per bottle. Our beverages are USDA organic, kosher, vegan, non-GMO, and keto and paleo friendly. Finally, bottled beverages that you can truly trust. Check out drinkdowntoearth.com and use promo code PODCAST10 for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. Our guest today is Chef AJ. Chef AJ is a culinary instructor, author, and professional speaker who has been devoted to a plant-based diet for almost 40 years. She is the author of the popular book, Unprocessed, How to Achieve Vibrant Health and Your Ideal Weight which chronicles her journey from a junk food vegan faced with a diagnosis of precancerous polyps to learning how to create foods that nourish and heal the body. She is also the host of the television series, Healthy Living with Chef AJ, which airs on Foodie TV. Chef AJ is the creator of the Ultimate Weight Loss Program, where she teaches thousands of individuals how to create meals to transform health, how to deal with cravings and food addiction, and helps address the emotional side of eating. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth Podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. I know you had a very interesting childhood and early on in your life, you dealt with some challenges that you were later on able to learn from and use to really fuel your growth and success. And it led you to the amazing life that you have today. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and what ultimately inspired you to become the amazing chef and wellness leader that you are today. (laughs) The amazing chef AJ. I think what inspired me really was my compassion for animals. And that really is where it all came from. You know, I didn't know it was going to lead to a career. Honestly, when I was 17 years old, I was a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania because I'm studying to be a veterinarian. I was assigned to work for a veterinary doctor as part of my, I was on scholarship. And the very first day of the job, he hands me a tank of live salamanders and he says, I need you to cut all of their heads off. And I'm like, why? And he goes, well, I'm doing protein lens regeneration experiments in the salamander and we just need the eyes. And I grew up kosher. And I say that because when you eat a kosher diet, you're eating fewer animals than almost everybody else, anybody. Anyway, so like, for instance, I never ate like crab legs, you know, you know, weird things that that other people like think are delicacies. I never ate those crab legs like you see people do where they're breaking the leg with a little thing and then eating it. We never ate shrimp. We never ate lobster. We never ate any pork. Grew up kosher as well. Oh, well, cool. So then you know that's kind of cool because (laughs) yes, kosher people eat animals, but so many less choices, right? And so so, so I always was squeamish. I remember once when I was little, my relatives took me deep sea fishing and I couldn't do it. I vomited because I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't even put the fish on the hook. I just thought the whole thing was barbaric. And so there was a lot of ethical eating in Judaism anyway. I don't think the cow, you know, the way they kill it is necessarily that much more humane. But for example, like even the kosher laws not to to eat, you know, the calf in its mother's milk. So I never developed a taste for things because I never had a cheeseburger or a pepperoni pizza or thing like that. 
And so I was squeamish anyway, is what I'm trying to say. Like, I just always thought like, God, that's weird that we eat dead animals. And I said to my mom, I wanted to be vegan. I didn't know the word when I was little. She goes, oh no, you know, you have to have your protein. I was born in 1960 and that's what they thought. And so even when I ate animals, she always made it not look like an animal. So I couldn't eat like a rib, for example, or a piece of chicken with a bone. I could eat like tuna fish, you know, from a can. I could eat like a chili if it had meat, if I didn't see it. So I never really wanted to eat meat. So then when I'm asked to like kill a live animal for what didn't seem like any good reason, I did it once because I was thinking, you know, I'm on scholarship. I, I, this is my job. And then I just puked my guts out. And I just said, God, I'm never going to hurt any of your animals again. And that includes eating them, wearing them. That, that's what I love about Judaism is you're not supposed to wear fur. You're not supposed to hunt. And that's why when I moved to California when I was 11, we had gone to either Orthodox or conservative temples. And now we're in a reformed temples and, and people are wearing fur coats on, on the Jewish holiday. I'm thinking, how could you be, Jews don't wear fur coats. We're not supposed to do that, you know? And so it was interesting. So I became an ethical vegan in 1977, September 1st. It's been about 43 years, which is great. However, I did everything you could possibly do wrong from a health standpoint. I forgot that the first three letters of vegan and vegetarian are veg. And I was not eating any vegetables. Like I'm not talking zero, none, no fruits and vegetables. I was a food addict. I was obese. And I just ate a lot of junk food because, you know, Slurpees are vegan. And I was having a lot of Slurpees and a lot of Dr. Pepper, you know, French fries are vegan. And there's a lot of stuff that's vegan, that's junk food. And if I had known then what I knew now to eat, I think would have been different, but I didn't. And so I ate a lot of junk and you can do that for a while. And some people can do it for a pretty long time and live a long life, not necessarily a healthy life. But what happened to me is when I was 43 years old, almost 43, I woke up bleeding and it turned out I had what they call pre-colon cancer. My uh, colon was riddled with what they call edematous precancerous polyps that if not removed, always turn into colon cancer. And we have many people in my family that had cancer in, in general and colon cancer specifically. And so they couldn't remove the polyps because my colon was too dirty. And so they said, well, you're going to have to have regular surgery, like where they cut you open instead of going in. And I said, no, I'm not because I'm really afraid of doctors and hospitals and medicines and anesthesia, especially because I, when I was 19, I had a same day operation that was supposed to be minor and left me in the hospital, not breathing for six weeks because I was allergic to the general anesthesia. So that's a really good fear to have because it really wants, it keeps you motivated to not ever have surgery. So I changed my diet from a junk food vegan diet to the one I eat today, which is very health promoting, whole food plant-based without sugar and oil and things like that and salt. And went to a place called the Optimum Health Institute. And within six months, all the polyps in my colon disappeared just from changing my diet. And of course, the doctors didn't believe it. And what can I tell you? So I, you know, I'm helping animals. I'm helping my health and the planet too. When I first became vegan in 1977, this global warming and the planet wasn't as big of a piece of the puzzle as it is now. So that wasn't, I mean, listen, I'm for the planet, but that's not the original reason why I went vegan. But it's a great thing because if you, this is the thing I don't understand. If you care about people, animals, and the planet, it doesn't make sense to me that I just don't get why everybody isn't vegan. It just seems like the the kind, the humane, the right thing to do, especially in this age of COVID where we know where the virus came from, but not everybody is awake yet, I guess, or is thinking and feeling as we would like them to be. Definitely. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And it's funny because we're huge animal lovers and growing up, we ate kosher, but we weren't necessarily vegan. And we have two little dogs now. And ever since we got them, like we had to cut out so much food because it's like, it's like a little dog is like a little chicken, you know? <laughs> our, so our love for dogs kind of propelled us and also 
the coach following the kosher diet, especially in college where you're a lot more limited, you almost are forced to eat a vegan diet. Isn't that cool? I was talking to a man who, his name is Sergeant Vegan, and he was talking about how it was kind of difficult to be vegan in Afghanistan. And he would pretend he was of another faith so he could get the halal meals because they had vegan choices. And and I've heard of people doing that in prison. They pretend to be Jewish so they can get the the healthier choices. And, you know, really one of the things that spurred me to be be, vegan, I had to be, to stay vegan. I remember I had a friend who was a veterinarian and she said, if you love your dog so much, how can you eat? that other animal. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's how I feel. Because, you know, in other countries, people eat dogs. And and in this country, we're like, oh, how dare they? But how dare they? Why is it any different to eat a pig? A pig is smarter than a dog. So people just are so asleep. It's crazy. I know. And I always say that actually, because I always at stores will sort of just pick up on what people are picking up and buying and eating. And it's interesting because when you are eating just a little bit of everything, you don't really pay attention to it. But when you're plant-based or vegan for a year, two years plus, and you see other people buying meat, it looks so inhumane. Like when you're in it, you don't realize it. But then when you actually go to a grocery store and you see these meat aisles, you're like, how is this legal? It just completely changes your perspective. It's so weird. And when COVID first started and people were panicking, we were running out of toilet paper, you know, you'd go to the store and all the greens were left in the store. You know, I didn't have a problem. They were buying all the meat and all the processed food. Exactly. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that when you initially went vegan, you didn't necessarily do it the right way because it's great to see in society that veganism is on the rise. And you see so many more people that did not eat a vegan diet are now transitioning into it. But there are certain foods that you should still watch out for. Because like you said, especially now, there's so many vegan processed foods, which you don't want to have an excess of. It's still a better option than an animal-based product. But even then, you do want to be really mindful of the types of food. It is such a, you know, it's so interesting because you are so right. And I get, I don't want to say bashed, but I, I get maybe criticized sometimes because I make it too hard for people to be vegan because I don't want people to eat processed food. And when I became vegan, there weren't any of these foods. There were no fake cheeses, no fake meats. There wasn't even boxed plant milk. And now you can go to the smallest town in the United States in the 99 cent store and find some kind of a boxed plant milk. And so if I had known then what I know now, I could have done it quite easily and healthfully eating whole foods. And so one of the things I, and again, you know, they say when you're a hammer, you see everything as a nail. And so because most of my work are with people that are overweight, that have been overweight a long time and that suffer from food addictions, the problem with the processed vegan foods is they're what we call pleasure trap foods. They're just as addictive to people that are sensitive to the effects of these high fat, sugar, salty type foods as if they weren't vegan. And so they can get just as much a pleasure out of these processed vegan foods as they can the ones that are based in meat. And like you say, they're not really health promoting. They're certainly better for the animals and better for the planet, but you could argue that they're not really that much better for your health. And again, I'd much rather see people eat that, eat beyond meat than eat at McDonald's. But people have to understand they're cooking it on the same grill. And as far as I know, they don't have like a separate area to cook your vegan stuff in a non-vegan restaurant. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's number one. Yeah. And it's a double-edged sword because people say, well, you you know, if you support them, they'll have more vegan choices, but I'm still supporting them and they're still hurting animals. So again, this is a whole big other conversation. If people want to eat them, it's fine. I don't tell anybody what to eat unless they're my client and paying me to tell them. But I will tell people that if your goal is health, that for some people, these foods are not very health promoting. And I have seen too many vegans get the same diseases as non-vegans get by eating the kind of diet that I ate at the beginning, which is a junk food vegan diet. I mean, I was obese eating a vegan diet. I had the beginning of colon cancer. I had reflux. I had arthritis. All these things that went away when I switched to a more whole food. 
The thing I worry about is they're so tasty. They can be addictive for some people and it's hard for them to, it's fine in the transition, but some people never transition and then they never eat fruits and vegetables. And that's my message to everybody, even if they're not vegan. Okay, eat what you eat, but eat fruits and vegetables too. I think fruits is such a polarizing topic when, you know, in reality, they're so good for us. A lot of people classify sugar as sugar, but obviously we know that our body processes fruits differently and fruits contain fiber, so many vitamins, minerals that our bodies need to function optimally. Absolutely. And these diets like these keto diets, they basically have you avoid all plants, almost all plants. And people are afraid of fruit and they're afraid of beans. And what kind of world is this where we're afraid of whole foods? It makes no sense. God wouldn't have created these if they weren't meant for us to eat. But some people say that about animals too, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I've heard you speak a little bit before about your past. And I know you said that you are a food addict and I know that you had struggles with other eating disorders growing up. So I'm interested in knowing, because I think this is something that a lot of young women and men face throughout their lives. And I'm just curious for you to speak on how you really were able to overcome this and be on the other side now thriving and looking great. (laughs) Thank you. That's a good question. And you know, I think I was an early adopter. I had anorexia before they even knew how to treat it. The way they treated anorexia when I was a teenager is they basically locked you in a mental hospital and that was it. And they said, either you eat or we put a tube down your throat and feed you. That was nothing like there today. And so that was when I was very young, a teenager. I started probably, I think around the age of 14. And then what came out of the anorexia was bulimia, which in some ways is worse because anorexia is a horrible disease. I don't recommend it. People die from it. But it's not that hard because you basically so you have no energy. You just sit around and do nothing, you know, because you can't eat, you can't have a life. But bulimia actually was a full time job because then what you're trying to do is eat as much food as you can and then find all these unhealthful, maladaptive ways to get rid of it, like purging and laxatives and diuretics. And it's they're both crazy making diseases. They're both mental illnesses. They really are. And they they require psychological treatment, for which I recommend Dr. Doug Lyle or Dr. Jen Hawk. But one of them was alive then. I certainly didn't know them. So what really helped me was going to a place called the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, and gleaning the knowledge of Dr. Alan Goldhammer, Dr. Doug Lyle, who co-wrote a book called The Pleasure Trap. And when I learned to eat the right food, which was a whole food plant-based diet centered on starches, then these disorders really not only were minimized, but went away because one of the reasons that people binge is because they restrict. You, you don't see binging in countries that are starving. Binging is always a response to some kind of restriction, people going on some kind of weighing and measuring program or calorie counting program because they don't work, you get so hungry, then you end up binging, then you have a whole nother problem. But when you eat enough starch, and by starch, I I mean, not bread and chips and crackers and pretzels. I mean, whole wet starches like potatoes, sweet potatoes, winter squashes, beans, rice. When you eat enough of these satiating foods, you're not driven to binge because you you have not only enough calories, but you have satiation. And, And of course, with fruits and vegetables, you have enough nutrients. So once I understood calorie density and nutrient density and the importance of starch, like Dr. John McDougall talks about, it was pretty easy not to have an eating disorder because really what binging is, is it's a way you want to be able to eat a lot and be thin but you can do that with calorie density in a whole food plant-based diet. It's like every day is a binge, not really a binge, but you get, you get to eat so much food when you understand calorie density. And instead of eating oils and peanut butter and chocolate and bread and sugars and animal products, you get to eat fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and you really can have this all-you-can-eat magical buffet. So you get to eat a lot and you get to be thin. And if that's what somebody wants and healthy, that's the other thing. It's, it's again, there's nothing the vegan diet cannot do. <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting that you mentioned all this restriction that leads to binging because the US is our diet industry is one of the largest money makers, but still we're the fattest country. So you kind of have to look at that and see that there is a really big relationship between restriction and dieting with binging and obesity. Absolutely. And most people like, you know, I was talking to a client today and most people are looking for a quick fix because the plant-based diet will get you to your ideal weight, but it's not a fast weight loss diet the way say a low carb diet is or a calorie controlled diet is. Most people lose weight more slowly. Women at the tune of about one to two pounds a week, men two to three. And some of these other diets that restrict carbs, weight comes off quickly because it's water weight. And then what happens is people then start, they'll eat a potato and go, oh, the scale went up four pounds. See, I told you. Well, yeah, it went up four pounds because two pounds were glycogen that's stored in your liver and muscle and two pounds is water. So people don't really understand. They don't understand nutrition at all. How could they? Their doctors don't even get taught it in medical school. But you're right. I think, I, I forget, was it $8 billion a year industry? Maybe I don't remember the numbers, but how much people spend on diets. And yet 98% of people that lose weight gain it all back. And anywhere from 70 to 90% of Americans are overweight. So the answer isn't another diet. The answer is adopting a health-promoting diet that is delicious and sustainable for the rest of your life. But see, people, people don't want that. People want to be able to eat all the crap they want and still be thin. And unless you're genetically blessed, that's not going to be most people. Yeah. Patience is definitely a virtue. And I think that with social media and all the marketing that sells products to people that promises unattainable results is kind of the problem that puts people in a struggle with weight loss. Now, we spoke a little bit about food addiction. I don't think a lot of people understand exactly what it is because it's not in the DSM-5. It's not like an alcohol addiction or drug abuse. So I'd love for people to understand what it really means and your definition of it. Yeah, yeah you're right. It isn't in the DSM. And they, the doctors that are really pioneering food addiction, unfortunately, that none of them are in the plant-based world. And so that means they all come from the same kind of 12-step weighing and measuring solution. But at least they're putting it in the spotlight so people can understand that this is a disorder that people are born with. It's like a biogenetic disease in their brain that they're not, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not broken. It's just sort of like some people are born with asthma or diabetes or blue eyes. People have this vulnerability to these highly processed refined carbohydrates like sugar, flour, and alcohol. So food addiction is not the best name for it because it sounds like you can be addicted to food and you really can't be addicted to food and eating because nobody has having to go to arugula anonymous meetings, let's face it. But you can have a problem with certain foods the way an alcoholic has problems with alcohol or a drug addict has problems with drugs. And these are the refined carbohydrates like sugar and flour specifically that go through the same refining process and as drugs and alcohol. And so depending on who you talk to, this is not like, it's only like maybe one out of seven people or 17%, but that's still a lot of people. And also it exists on a continuum with some people being more vulnerable and some people being less. There are people that probably could have a food where sugar is the fifth ingredient. And there's other people that if there's any amount of sugar in there, it sets them off. It's like a trigger. It's a self right now it's a self-diagnosed disease. And one of the doctors that I work with, she says it's it, more, think of it as like a dopamine deficiency disorder that people are seeking these high fat, high pleasure 
trapped foods to feel good, which that makes sense that everything we do in life is to seek pleasure, avoid pain or conserve energy, according to the motivational triad that Lyle and Goldhammer talk about in the pleasure trap. But certain people have, they produce less dopamine in their brain, this feel good neurotransmitter. So they're more driven to the behaviors that will produce more dopamine, whether it's drugs or alcohol or these very hyper palatable foods. Also, part of the problem is, is the foods that people have trouble with, these addictive foods, like mostly flour, sugars, dairy for some people. Dairy is not a, a natural product. It doesn't exist in nature, except in the breast of the mammal that it came from. And so our ancestors didn't struggle with this. Our grandparents didn't struggle with this. It, it really wasn't until the processed food industry became an empire that people started having problems. And what people don't realize is this you could argue that most lung cancer was created by the use of tobacco, by the tobacco industry. Food addiction is a disease that was created by the processed food industry who incidentally, after smoking became known as being so dangerous to our health, they bought up all the processed food industries. And there's a couple of books that really shed light on this that people could learn from. And these aren't vegan people writing the books. One is called The End of Overeating by the former head of the FDA under Bill Clinton. It's called The End of Overeating by Dr. David Kessler. And the other book is called Salt, Sugar, and Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us by an investigative journalist and Pulitzer Prize winning author, Michael Moss. And in these books, they explain that sugar is addictive, fat is addictive, and salt is addictive. But when you put them together in a process called layering and loading, which is what the restaurant industry and the processed food industry does, you create this hyper palatable product that can create this bliss point in our brain that for people that are vulnerable, they really can't eat just one. And some people can. And unfortunately, the people that have this problem, they they end up feeling bad about themselves because they compare themselves to somebody they can. That would be like somebody that's an alcoholic feeling bad about themselves because the neighbor next door is able to have a drink and stop. And so if people really think about it the way they do drugs and alcohol, there shouldn't be any shame in this disease. Also, these foods were foods that didn't exist in nature. And so if you just eat the right food, whether you have food addiction or not, you're going to be fine. I also find it super interesting that you talk about eating as close to nature as possible, which we fully agree with, and the fact that carbohydrates are a necessary part of our diet. A lot of people assume that if they're trying to lose weight or if they're trying to maintain their health, they should completely cut out carbs as we see with these really trendy diets now, such as keto. But as we know, good sources of carbohydrates are actually very beneficial for our bodies. And we've seen several of your videos where you show a day in the life and all the food that you eat, and it includes potatoes, sweet potatoes, all these different starches and yet you're still able to maintain your health and feel great. Absolutely. Not only maintain this 50 pound weight loss, but that's how I lost weight was eating potatoes, rice, and beans. I think that a carb-free diet is at best sad, not to mention that it's a selfish diet because you're destroying the planet and harming animals. It's true that there's going to be some short-term health benefits, like for people that have diabetes or have to lose weight quickly, just like with gastric bypass, there can be benefits because they can lose weight quickly and overcome diabetes. But these are not long-term solutions because most people cannot sustain a low-carb diet. First of all, because they're constipated all the time. They've got bad breath. That state of ketosis is not a natural state that you're supposed to be in. But I don't know anybody who can maintain it long-term because it's just very, very unsatisfying eating a bunch of meat and fat maybe with a few vegetables, whereas eating lots of potatoes and rice and beans and fruits and vegetables, this is very sustainable. So I think people go on these diets because they want to lose weight quickly and they will, but they'll gain the weight back very quickly as well because you can't sustain it. And if you can't sustain a diet, then the change is not going to be permanent. And that's why 
I recommend that people think about what is best for their health, the planet and the animals, which is the whole food plant-based diet, because it's delicious, it's affordable, and it's sustainable. Definitely. Now, if someone comes to you and they say that they're a food addict, right? So food is something that we all need, right? So Mm -hmm. like an alcoholic, they can abstain from alcohol, hopefully, and never drink alcohol again and be fine and healthy. But food is something that, you know, people eat two to three or maybe even four meals a day. So where do you have them start? Well, it depends on the person, but mostly I have them start with abstinence because just like somebody coming into an alcohol treatment program, you tell them not to drink alcohol. Like that is the most important thing. And so you don't tell people not to eat food because as you said, you have to have food to survive, but nobody has to have sugar and flour or alcohol to survive. You don't have to have those foods. So I teach an abstinence-based program because even if they're not addicted, just in terms of caloric density, with sugar being 1,800 calories a pound and flour being 1,500 calories a pound, people will lose weight and gain health by eliminating those anyway. It's not to say that some people can't have varying amounts and not be overweight and be healthy, but let's face it, almost everybody in the United States is fat and sick. And I was too. So these foods are not health promoting. So I, I start from a place of abstinence and I don't tell them, hey, by the way, you can never have another dessert again. And, and they can have desserts because I make delicious desserts, whole food. I mean, I just, I make this carrot cake. It's like to die for double layer vanilla frosting and it's made out of actual food. But a lot of times I do what Dr. Doug Lyle recommends is you tell people to do an experiment. Like you don't say, hey, by the way, you can never have this again. You say, you know, let's just see if we can go a couple of weeks doing this and see how we feel. Because when you tell people they can never do something again, then guess what they want to do? That. It is like an AA program in a way because it's every day you commit to doing your best, doing these kind of things because people don't like the fact that they can't have these things. And you know why? That's because they're addicts. So what do you say to people who, because a lot of people say, well, we need balance. We need moderation. Oh yeah. We'll see how well that has worked for America with 90% of the people. Nobody can be moderate, especially an addict. Yeah. And when they say that this is an austere or extreme or draconian, I will point out that the way I recommend to eat is the way that our ancestors ate throughout most of human history and how they eat in countries today that are not fat and sick. A little while ago, I was taking a lift ride. And my driver was a 29-year-old gentleman from Uganda, and somehow diet came up, and we had almost the exact same diet. He wasn't a vegan. He wasn't trying to lose weight or recover from food addiction, but he was raised in a country where they actually ate food. He didn't eat dairy. He didn't eat processed food. He probably had some animal products, but for the most part, we ate exactly the same. So, you know, (laughs) there's moderation is a myth because if it worked, it would have worked by now. And if you're overweight or sick, it didn't work for you. So balance to me is you have to put the whole world in balance because eating a keto diet, the world is not in balance. When you're harming animals and harming the planet, how is that balance? There's these channels on YouTube where these dietitians are always bashing vegans and stuff like that. But I'm basically recommending that people eat food. So how is that out of balance to eat food? Processed food, that's an imbalance. But people want good news about their bad habits, like Dr. McDougall says. People want to have cheat days and they want to be able to indulge and be self-indulgent. And so that's what they want to hear. But it doesn't work. I promise. I was fat for 52 years trying to practice moderation. 
Yeah, and the foods that you recommend are really timeless foods. As you mentioned, it's foods that our ancestors have been eating. And we eat so much sugar, fat, and salt in this country. It's just, you know, people just can't appreciate the taste of fruits and vegetables. And I was that person too. Listen, anything I'm criticizing other people, it sounds like I'm criticizing. I'm not. I'm trying to get people to not go down the same path of obesity and sickness that I did. I didn't eat fruits and vegetables till I was 43. You know, I thought Skittles were, they were the closest to a fruit that I came. But when you can uh, overcome this addiction, to these these sugary, fatty, salty foods, not only does your health improve, your weight stabilizes if that's an issue, but you just feel better. And, and really, people don't know how bad they feel until they feel better. It's sort of like when you get a new car, you are so protective of that car. It's like you park far away because you don't want anybody to have this little ding because if one little ding shows up, you freak out. And then 10 years later, you just stop caring and there's all these dings and your body can be like that new car again, you know, but you've let it go so long that you don't even notice how bad you feel until you start feeling better. But the problem is, is there's this period of detox. It could be three days or maybe longer when people are eating a really bad diet and they don't want to go through that uncomfortable period. Sort of like when people quit smoking smoking or drinking, even drinking coffee, not just alcohol. They feel worse before they feel better. And most people will not tolerate any period of discomfort. And that's why a place like the True North Health Center can be so beneficial or the McDougal 10-day program, because you're in a sheltered and closed environment under medical care while you're detoxing. And the fact that you have to detox just shows how toxic your diet is. Because listen, if I can't get arugula or kale or sweet potatoes, and I have to eat Brussels sprouts and rice instead, I don't detox. I don't go through withdrawal. Any whole natural food won't do that. But the diets that most people are, they're very, very addictive. Even if somebody's not overweight, people just don't realize how addicted they are to processed foods. Definitely. And that emotional attachment that they have to certain foods as well. Like you said, some people aren't willing up to give up sugar, but you kind of have to go back and see like, why am I so obsessed or hung up on these certain foods and giving them up? Now for people who don't know about True North, I'm in naturopathic medical school, so I've learned about it and we've been wanting to visit, which we will really soon. But if people don't know what it is, can you just describe what it is and the conditions that they help people with? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that you're in naturopathic medical school, True North is located in Santa Rosa, California. It's been there over 30 years, founded by Dr. Alan Goldhammer and his wife, Dr. Jennifer Murano. And it's a medically supervised therapeutic water-only fasting center. And even though they fast most people on water, don't worry, you don't have to fast when you're there. When I went there, I couldn't fast. I was on a medication that was not allowed. So when that is the case, you can either do what's called a juice fast, or you can be what's called, my favorite, an unrestricted feeder, where you eat three delicious gourmet chef prepared all you can eat meals buffets every day and the thing is is they don't you can't just walk in it's not like a hotel you have to have a, a consult with dr goldhammer first and by the way he offers free consults to see if true north is right for you 20 minutes on the telephone but the conditions like if somebody has end-stage pancreatic cancer no they're not going to go there but they've had people with other kinds of cancers like lymphoma, for example, that have reversed their disease by going there. Or people often go there with high blood pressure that just, just the regular vegan diet just didn't quite get them off their medications. High blood pressure is one reason a lot of people go diabetes to get off their medication different autoimmune diseases, different GI diseases, because they put the body in a state of complete rest. And when the body doesn't have to digest food, a lot of miracles can happen in repair and healing. And there's 
tons of medical literature on their website, healthpromoting.com, with this, the scientific journals that they've been published in, and lots of case studies of people that, I mean, there was this one girl that had like a chronic migraine headache from a head trauma for like, I don't know, seven years or something. And after two fasts, she finally, the pain went away. So they see miracles there all the time. And, and I had the privilege of teaching there for about eight years before my program was stopped just because they got so popular. I did a holiday program there for many, many years. And it's just a wonderful place. And Dr. Goldhammer is just a wonderful doctor. And for people that really aren't getting better, that's a great place to go. And the thing is, it's very affordable. The price per day is cheaper than any hotel in California. It's like $149 a day. So it's, it's a pretty cool place. And for people that can't get there, all the doctors do medical consults for less than $100 on phone or or Skype. So you can still glean the knowledge of the doctors there if you physically can't get there. But you would love it as a naturopathic doctor. I promise you. Definitely. I'm definitely going to have to check it out. And I think what's so amazing about True North, and I think doctors now are recognizing how therapeutic fasting can be, but I want people to understand that you should be your number one health advocate. You should reach out to different doctors, different opinions, because fasting can be so beneficial, like you said, for so many conditions. And I think that people are starting to take their own health into their own hands and really find other sources of healing. So I think that's really amazing. Right. I don't recommend people fast at home though. Maybe a juice thing, but not a water fast because they really do supervise you. They're checking your blood and your urine and your blood pressure every day, actually your blood pressure twice a day. So it's not something that you can just like say, oh, I think that's a good idea. I'm going to fast. That's very dangerous as a matter of fact, because when people fast at home, they're generally not in complete rest. They're working, they're moving around and that can be disastrous. Now, a question that I have for you is the challenges of, let's say, going out to eat. So if somebody is trying to follow a protocol where they're eliminating sugar, oils, salt, and they still want to go out to eat, whether it be for a social function or they just have their weekly meal out, do you have any tips that you recommend for somebody who needs to eat out or wants to eat out, but they want to keep it as clean as they can? Oh boy, that's tough. The one thing that for some people, the good that came out of this uh, sheltering in place is that clients that I would advise, look, don't eat at restaurants, especially if you're trying to lose weight. They're actually losing weight because they're realizing how much more sugar, fat, and salt restaurants put in their food than you ever would at home. This is going to sound crazy, but my advice is go to a steakhouse. As weird as that is, you can often get healthier meals in a steakhouse than in a vegan restaurant where they won't customize anything for you and everything is full of sugar, fat, and salt. So when I've been to a steakhouse, they have sides because that's what veganism is. It's like eating the sides and they will make you almost any kind of vegetable, any way you want, whether it's steamed or roasted, things like that. And they generally have giant baked potatoes at steakhouses, not these little snivelly ones. And they often have salsa on the menu because they're often serving fish or something like that. So some of my heartiest meals out have been at steakhouses. The other thing you can do is call in advance. Check them. If the restaurant has, I think it's at least three locations, their nutritionals have to be online now. If it's a smaller place, it doesn't. But call in advance and ask them if they can accommodate you. Don't call it seven o'clock on a Saturday night when they're busy. Call like after lunch and before dinner, like on a weekday, like between two and four and just say, you know, I've heard really great things about your restaurant. I'd love to come. But instead of saying like, I'm just this crazy vegan that has a restricted diet, say, I'm on a very special diet doctor's orders. Can you accommodate me? And if they can't, they'll say, there are restaurants that actually say no substitutions, but usually they'll say, well, what, what can you eat? So instead of saying what I can't eat, tell them what you can eat. Say, you know, I can eat any fruit, any vegetable, 
any whole grain or legume, but I need it prepared without sugar, oil, and salt. Is that possible? And then you're going to get your answer. And sometimes the chefs have thanked me because it's kind of boring making the same thing. I've often had the most creative and delicious meal. Uh, Dr. Nate Gershwald has something on his website, Fasting Escape, where you can actually print out this card and hand it to them, which basically says what you eat and what you don't eat. But the more you can do in advance would be better. Ethnic restaurants tend to be pretty good because they have vegetables <laughs> because people in other countries actually ate vegetables and rice. But you know, you have to ask because believe it or not, like you think, oh, chipotle, rice and beans. Yeah, except they put soy oil in both the rice and the beans. So a lot of this you can look online, but man, if weight loss is your goal, but well, restaurants are not your friend, I can promise you that. You can go to happycow. I think it's .net and look for all the vegan restaurants. But again, Sometimes I've had more trouble getting healthy food at a vegan restaurant than at a regular restaurant because they didn't want to make any effort for me as a vegan. Yeah. And I like that you bring up calling the restaurant ahead of time because sometimes people are starting on a program and they don't want to let all their friends know or family members and what they'll say about their diet or they don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable like they're passing judgment. So I think calling ahead of time is a really good plan and it takes away the stress from the person or just from the situation and they're able to enjoy their time with their loved ones as opposed to just being stressed about what they're going to eat. Absolutely. I can tell you a wild story and a lot of people say, oh my God, I can't believe it. But there was this girl, she was in my program and it was life and death for her, her eating. It wasn't just that she was trying to lose weight. She really was really close to being, you know, put on insulin and she really did need to lose weight. But she had the kind of job where she entertained clients a lot. So that meant a lot of lunch or dinner meetings. And this was in Los Angeles and there's a thing on La Cienica called Restaurant Row. And so what she did, and the restaurant was totally cool with this, is she would get there early, she would give her food to them, and then they would plate it. And you know, she'd say like, oh, I'll have the usual. And she would pay, they would charge her for the, the lowest entree. And that's how she navigated it. And nobody knew. Yeah. And it's just about taking health into your own hands. And sometimes you have to be a little bit selfish. I think a lot of people try to accommodate others or not make others feel uncomfortable, which I think is great and it's important, but I think you also are your best self when you're taking care of yourself first. So an example like that, while it may seem extreme, if that was the only way that it was going to work for her, then good for her. You know, I applaud her. Yeah. It's just thinking outside the box. And a lot of times, you know, you could just eat first. I mean, I I don't recommend people eat if they're not hungry, but just have some starch in your belly and just, you know, you do the best you can. It's just that, you know, I find that at least for me, it's not enjoyable going to restaurants because I want to be able to eat the vegan pizza and the vegan lasagna and the vegan carrot cake. And I can't, I mean, I can't, but I choose not to. And so what I can get at these places is just compared to what I can make at home, it's more plentiful, less expensive and more delicious. So for me, it's always been kind of a downer. So I get that people want to socialize, but you know, do potlucks, do other things. You know, there's ways actually to interact with other humans that just don't involve food. There's like other things we can be doing other than eating. There's plays and movies. Well, when they open up again, I mean, I don't know when, but right now we can't, many places we're not really eating at restaurants either, but go for a walk, play pickleball, like do things with people that aren't always food related. You can have relationships outside of the restaurant. I promise you it's possible. I know it's crazy how all of social plans lately are lunch, brunch, dinner, but you're right. There's so many other ways to connect and have great social experiences that should not have to center around food. Yeah, like Zoom, like we're doing right now. Exactly, exactly. Now, I want to know your opinion on somebody who, let's say, trying to follow a cleaner way of eating, but they slip. 
And what we see oftentimes is somebody might slip and rather than allowing that to be a day that, that things don't go the way they should and then getting back right to their regimen, they allow that to lead them down a slippery slope. So I'm curious oh, how you approach someone yeah. who might slip. That's right. Well, just know that as Dr. Jen Hawk says, relapse is part of recovery. I don't know anybody that hasn't slipped, myself included. Part of the problem is not just that the person beats themselves up psychologically when they slip, but what they don't realize is part of the problem isn't just the beating up of yourself, but the fact that, especially if you've had a period of abstinence and now you're eating these foods, they draw you back in, just like an alcoholic that relapsed on alcohol. And so now your brain is all excited again and, and back in that pleasure trap. And it makes it really hard to get back on track. That's why, if possible, that's why I'm such a fan of abstinence, because to me, it's just a lot easier than dancing with the devil and going back and forth on a food plan. But it just know that you are going to slip. And so have a plan in place. Number one, if you have a clean environment, it's going to be a lot harder to slip at home. Usually a slip would occur out at a restaurant, somebody's house, but just get, just go back to your program right away, whatever it is, the next meal. Don't wait until January 1st or Monday. Okay. So you had a slip after you have a slip, wait until you're hungry to eat and eat lots of green vegetables, lots of starch. The thing is, is I don't have like a miracle answer. Like this is what you do. You just have to get back on track. It's like when you're a little baby, you fell down a bunch of times before you learned to walk. And I'm sure you don't remember that, but your parent wasn't saying like, oh, what a stupid kid. You can't walk. You just fell down. No, you just keep trying again. And that's really the definition of success is standing up one more time than you fall down. But you have to realize that these foods have such a pull and such an addictive nature. That's why it is so hard to get back on track. Who was it? Um, Benjamin Franklin, I think it was, that said, tis far easier to suppress the first desire than try to satisfy all that follow. And so the thing is, is sometimes after a slip, it can take, you can lose your footing. It could take a day or two to get back on track. So, you know, have a plan for when that happens. Just know that it's going to happen. So what is your plan? Maybe be part of a group, if not mine, somebody else's, where you can get support either from a coach or a group that can help you get back on track quicker. But I really think that if you have a clean environment and all you have to eat in your house is healthy food, a slip or a relapse may occur occasionally, but not regularly, because what are you going to do? If you only have healthy food to eat, you're going to eat it. But you're right about the beating themselves up emotionally. There's a wonderful podcast I can recommend to your audience called Beat Your Genes, but specifically episode 161, where Dr. Lyle talks about this phenomenon called the ego trap, which is what happens. People set the bar too high, they don't achieve it, and then they, they kick over the table and then they fail. So that would be a really helpful podcast, episode 161 of Beat your genes for people that are prone to relapse or worried about what will happen if they do to listen to. Do your best, bless the rest, and just the more healthy meals you eat, it's not about getting 100 on every day. It's about getting your score up on any given day. So don't compare yourself to somebody like Dr. Alan Goldhammer, who's been doing this 40 years, that lives in a perfectly clean environment, that's never had these foods to begin with. You Don't compare yourself to anybody but the you that you were yesterday, and just keep trying. Just eat more vegetables. The more more greens you eat, the more bulletproof you are against relapse, I believe, because of this compound called thylakoids that they just, they fill you up in a way that just shuts off your hunger switch, fights your cravings for sugar. So just eat more vegetables. And there's a psychologist or social scientist, I believe, named BJ Fogg that says, turn a bad day into good data. So if you have a slip or a relapse, journal about it, right? Make a little video of yourself on the iPhone, figure out what went wrong. Usually there's clues. Something happened to lead to that. And a lot of times the clue is that you just didn't eat enough that day, especially starch. 
and so you were hungry or you didn't plan. So there's usually reasons to do that. But yeah, that's like beating yourself up because you have blue eyes. It's just, it's going to happen. You're going to slip, get over it, but just wipe the crumbs off, get back on plan the next meal, not the next day, the next meal. And probably there won't be a next meal because you're probably too full from having had a slip. That's what I love about your approach is it's more about filling yourself up with good foods as opposed to focusing on the foods that you can't have. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about the satiety index because we've spoken a lot about foods like potatoes and starches and that those are often foods that people associate with weight gain or you know restricted foods. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the satiety index. I've been trying for years to contact Dr. Susanna Holt, who developed the SI or satiety index. And I've tried through LinkedIn and all these things. I can't find her. But the satiety index is something that she discovered that it's not that foods have just different glycemic index, but they actually have different satiety. And people always say, oh, if I don't eat protein, if I don't eat fat, I'm going to be hungry. Well, she discovered that the food with the greatest satiety is actually the white potato, a boiled potato. And these are foods that people often avoid because they're afraid of carbs. And so most Americans eat over 90% of their calories from animal products and processed food that basically are fiberless and waterless, direct of vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, and antioxidants. And so the foods that are going to be the most filling are the foods with the fiber and water intact, which are the starches, potatoes, rice, and beans, kind of like the stick to your ribs quality. And so when people diet, they not only are eating less calories, but they're eating less of the satiating foods. They eat a lot of vegetables and fruits, which are really healthy, but they're not filling. And so you want to eat foods that are filling, and that's what potatoes are. And potatoes will not cause you to gain weight because they're one calorie a gram. It's what people put on the potatoes, like cheese and bacon and butter and sour cream. That's what causes people to gain weight or gain fat is the fat, not the carbs, but carbs have been getting a bad rap for a very long time. I know. And we've spoken with several different people who helped people reverse their diabetes by eating a higher carb diet. So I feel like just the way that we're taught to think about food from early on is completely twisted with the way that it should be for both maintaining our health and our weight. True that. Definitely. Now, I know you mentioned that you have groups, which I think is wonderful because a lot of people do need to, one, have a support system and also it helps with accountability. So can you tell us a little bit more about your groups and how they work? Yeah. Well, mainly it's just because I think people, even people that are just vegan need a group often because especially if they live somewhere like, I don't know, Alaska, I'm not bashing Alaska, but I don't know if there's a lot of vegans there necessarily because they, when you're different than other people, you often feel alone and isolated. And so when you're even more different because you're eating whole food plant-based and no oil, sugar, salt, it's like, God, there's nobody like me. But apparently there is because there's lots of groups, not just mine, of people that choose to eat this way. So often they're run on Facebook or just like subscription type websites. Mine's called Feel Fabulous Over 40. I get anybody that wants to try it two weeks for free. But there's lots of groups that are free, like on Facebook. You just have to find the one that resonates with you. And yes, accountability is great because it makes you up your game because if you know somebody else is watching, you're probably not going to do it. That's why, for example, keeping a food journal can be a really great idea for people trying to lose weight because if you have to write it down, you're probably not going to put that Twinkie in your mouth, especially if somebody like a coach is going to see your journal. But there are some people that are very introverted. Like I have a sister that was able to do this by herself. It doesn't resonate with Facebook or social media or groups. But for the most part, most people like to have that connection so that they don't feel so alone, especially if nobody in their family is doing this as well. Absolutely. I agree with you, especially 
particularly even people now that are home, you know, they might have kids at home or their husband might be following a different diet. So it's really nice that you can connect with so many people, especially online that have similar goals as you and can help be your cheerleaders. Now, what's something that you wish, because I know you work a lot with people who have struggled or are trying to lose weight. What do you wish people knew? Uh, I wish they knew that carbs are not the enemy. Carbs are not fattening. I wish they knew that you really can eat all the potatoes, rice and beans and fruits and vegetables you want if you're not eating sugar, oil, flour, alcohol, salt. I wish they knew how good they would feel if they would eat that way. And unless they actually experience for themselves or go somewhere like the True North Health Center or the McDougal 10-Day Program, they're just not going to believe it because they're not going to run the experiment because they've been they're afraid that what they've heard on the so-and-so show is true when it's not. And also wish people knew that, you know, your doctor didn't learn anything about nutrition in medical school. So he or she is probably not the best person to take nutritional advice for, because in general, when doctors do prescribe diets, it's almost always the low carb diet. It's very rarely a whole food plant-based diet. No, I totally agree. And that's a great point because that's what we mainly see being promoted now is a very high fat, low carb diet. Now, in addition to your incredible expertise in nutrition and wellness, you also were able to overcome depression and you seem to just be full of light and good Mm -hmm. energy and you have a really great outlook on life. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about your mindset and you can go back and let's say give advice to your 20 year old self. What would that advice be? Oh my God, get off the sugar. I, I tell you, for those of us that have struggled with this, sugar is a drug. And it's not a good drug because it raises us up, but it makes us lower even. I mean, so much of my mental health improved when I got off processed foods and sugar. I I tell you that right now. One thing that I didn't do, unfortunately, until I was in my 50s, which is a huge piece for anybody struggling with depression, anxiety, or both, is exercise. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. I do it every day now. I still don't love it, but I use it as my time to watch the good shows on Netflix because that's the only time I let myself watch my phone. And it's so good for your mental health. I did not exercise when I was losing weight because exercise actually contributes very little or negligibly to weight loss, but it improved your mental health so much. The problem is it's like people that take antidepressants. You take it every day. You need that dose every day and you need it to be first thing in the morning and it needs to be vigorous and it's a pain in the ass. If I could pay somebody to exercise for me and get the benefit, I would. So that really is a big contributor to mental health. And I also think limiting your exposure to negativity. So for me, even though I am on social media, I'm not on social media. So in other words, I follow this one little dog named Pluto, but I don't watch anybody else's stuff. And it's not because I don't think they're valuable or don't like them. I It's just... I can't let all that negativity come in because even even on my own page, people are saying mean things about me. So I try to really limit my time on social media and I don't watch the news. And I'm not kidding. When I say I don't watch the news, I mean like I'm 60 and I've never watched the television news, never in my life or read a paper. Now, that doesn't mean I'm an idiot. It doesn't, believe me, I know what's going on because believe me, it's all everybody talks about, right? But I don't watch the news because all it does is make you angry and depressed pressed and I don't watch the channels of the people that are talking about the news. So when I watch stuff, it's light. Like I watched, guess what I watched yesterday? The newest lady in the tramp. I want, I fill myself with positive stuff and not with negative stuff. And guess what? The news, it, has it ever been positive? Like ever? Have they ever reported anything good? It doesn't change. It's same day difference. And it doesn't mean that I'm not sympathetic to what's going on and won't take action, but just to sit there in front of a box and be angry 
that doesn't make any sense to me. So I use that time to interview people like you're doing that are doing good in the world. That's what I do. So I, I just, again, my environment, I control my environment because the world's tough yeah, right I now. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that takes a lot of self-awareness. Like I know for us personally, being in quarantine in New York, the three of us, we have a Peloton and we've been exercising so much more. And again, it's not for the weight aspect. It's just the heightened anxiety, especially in the beginning of like March, April, we just found that we've been exercising so much more and you feel better. You're not as anxious. You're not thinking about what's going to happen with the world tomorrow. And like you said, cutting out the news. In the beginning, my dad was watching the news and I was sitting downstairs and listening. And now he talks about it. I'm like, I don't want to hear it because I know that that's what makes me anxious. So I think being aware, journaling, knowing what fills you and what takes away from you, I think can be really powerful and really help with any obstacles that you may face. Absolutely. Because you know what? If something really happens, somebody's going to let you know. I promise. Oh yeah. Lately, I haven't been watching the news at all, but yet I know everything that's going on. Because Absolutely. You can't not know. Right. Everywhere you turn. But I totally do agree with you on that. Now, another yep. question we love to ask on our podcast is if you could have tea. Well, we usually ask if you could have tea, but since you love potatoes, if you could sit and have a potato with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? There are so many people I wish I could meet. And I'm going to pick somebody that passed away only because if the person is alive, there's still a chance I'll be able to meet with them. You know, I've met with like all the heroes in the plant-based movement, Dr. Esselstyn and Campbell, Furman, McDougall, they've all been to my house for dinner at some point. So I've gotten to meet all my plant-based heroes. It's like, my brain is fighting. Should I say I this know. or should I say this? Okay. So, ah, uh, God, there's two people that I, I, I can't decide. You can say both. Me. You can make it like a, a oh, three- kind of dinner party. Yeah. Yeah, so dinner- I would pick... This is going to sound so weird because they didn't know each other, I don't think. Victor Frankel and Rosa Parks. So if your viewers are too young, Rosa Parks was a lady in Montgomery, Alabama, African-American, refused to sit in the back of the bus. And I love that she did that, especially because she was a woman and just God, I would have loved to have just, I just to channel her spirit, you know, and just to talk to her about what that was like and how to inspire people to do that because it was civil disobedience, but it wasn't, there was no violence involved. And I love her and also Victor Frankel who was a Jewish psychiatrist who was in the concentration camps and his family was all killed in front of him. And yet he survived and went on to find a meaningful life, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and basically talked about how it's not what happens to us that defines us, but our reaction to it. And so that book, you know, especially when I was really, really depressed when I was younger, that book, Man's Search for Meaning was really, really a helpful book to me. So I would love to have Victor Frankel and Rosa Parks for dinner. And then let's have John McDougall over too because I love him so much. I've had him for a great dinner party. That's who I'd invite. (laughs) What a dream come true that would be. I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah, you have to, again, the ones that are still around, you could manifest that to happen. But I do agree with you on meeting with people that are uplifting and can teach us things. And I think that obviously the foods that we consume, our outlook on nutrition is very important, but also the people that we surround ourselves with are incredibly important. As you mentioned, making sure that your environment is positive and uplifting and really trying to limit your exposure to negativity could definitely help you exceed the goals that you set for yourself. Absolutely. Because, you know, I I talk about the environment a lot, but bad people are just like bad food, junk people. You got to get rid of them. You really do. Or or minimize your contact with them. And I think one of the things that, you know, I always go to what's good about this situation. The minute this quarantine happened, I'm thriving in captivity, but that's the kind of person I am. You know, I remember when my grandma got her leg amputated for diabetes and I'm like, well, 
you don't have to shave one leg now. And I wasn't being facetious or trying to be funny, but I try to find the good in it. And so for people that maybe didn't like their jobs or who they were interacting with, they're seeing what life can be like without those people. And, you know, unless like you're actually married to them or your kids, you don't have to, just like you don't have to eat bad food because everybody else is eating it. You don't have to interact with bad people. They're not bad people, but people that are not good for you, that are not going to support your physical and emotional well-being. So it really comes down to what Dr. Lyle said to me the first day at True North. We must work harder on our environment than we do ourselves, And that goes for everything, not just food. So yeah, when you get rid of people that are not, that don't resonate with you, that don't support you and lift you up, God, you, feel, you, you will feel so much lighter. I'll tell you, you lose weight just doing that, kicking them out the door. Exactly. And you could really tell which people that you're around really do want the best for you. I feel like people are often confused with the people they surround themselves with and they can't tell whether they have a positive or negative impact on them. But just picking up on things as simple as that will really show you who you should spend more time with and who you should limit. I'm not going to get this quote exactly right. It's a Tony Robbins quote, but it's something to the effect of you can judge a quality of a person's life by the expectation of their peer group. And if your peer group doesn't expect much from you, it's just a matter of time until you expect little of yourself, something like that. And so if people don't want the best for you, show them the door. That's what's great about being 60. I am getting so much more spunky. I'm becoming more like Rosa Parks. Mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore because life is too short. And, I, and I've lived more of my life than I'm probably going to live. And I can't do that anymore. And so I wish the same for all your viewers that they can get to a place where, you know, it doesn't mean like you have to be mean to people, but don't, that's all you have is your time and don't waste it with people that are not supportive of you. And just don't waste it eating bad food either. I could not agree more. And I think that comes with age, but we definitely have learned that lesson. Now, I'm curious what your sign is. Double Aries, Moon in Aquarius, March 22nd, 1960. I wanted to be a Libra, but I had no control over that. I'm an Aries too, yeah. April 11th. Yeah. Oh, very cool. <laughs> so you're an 11, I'm a 22. That's a, oh, those, are, those are master numbers. Yeah. yeah. We tend to be a little bit more outspoken and tell it like it is, but I want to be a Libra like my dog, Bailey. Everybody likes her. You know, she gets along with everyone, but you can't choose your sign. So... Aries is a great sign. I could attest to that. So <laughs> have lots of great qualities. Now for anyone out there who's going to listen to this interview and who wants to know more about your work or potentially work with you or join one of your groups, where are the best places to reach you? I would probably just go to my website, which is my name, literally, Chef AJ website. We made it as easy as we could. And then you can look at the different things that I have to offer. I've got a couple of books and things like that. Yeah. All great books. So we definitely recommend that everyone check out your work. And I'm excited about the new Thank book you. that you showed us a sneak peek of. Yeah. Well, there's one coming out before that called Own Your Health. This I don't have a mock-up of that one yet, but that is coming out actually sooner. But one of my favorite things that I do actually, I do summits. That's really what lights me up is interviewing these doctors that I've never met on topics like GI health and weight loss. So if they get on my mailing list, it's Chef AJ website when I have a summit because those are free and those are really interesting, very focused on certain topics for like a period of eight days. And I do enjoy doing that. I like interviewing people even more than I like being interviewed because I learned so much. You really do. We started this podcast actually like a month into quarantine. We we're like, let's just start it. And we've interviewed so many amazing people like yourself, so many amazing doctors, and we've learned so much. And we've implemented a lot of these things that people preach and teach in our own routine. So it's been amazing. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you for what you're doing. We need more young people because uh, I gotta, I'm going to be tired one day and I need somebody else to do all this for me. I know, but I don't think you'll ever be tired. It seems no, like you have I, a lot of energy. And all the psychics say, I mean, you know, and then the people are like, oh, she believes in astrology and say, I'm going to work till the day I die. But you know what? When you love what you do, you never work a day. 
Exactly. And that's what I wanted to also ask you. I feel like working and, and staying occupied and staying productive, it really does add to your vitality and your longevity. And I feel like so many people will retire officially, whatever that means, and they just live their life leisurely and don't really have that passion for something every single day. And so I think it is really important to have something that gets you up in the morning and that excites you every day. Absolutely. And just knowing that if I can make a difference in somebody's life in their diet, that's going to mean less suffering to the animals. That's what lights me up. It just so happens that the vegan diet is unparalleled for health and weight loss. I'm very lucky that way because when I was just doing it for the ethics and I was 50 pounds overweight, nobody was really listening to what I said. So at the end of the day, it's just like just alleviating animal suffering is really what lights me up. And I, I hope that you know one day we'll look back on factory farming the way that we look back on child labor or slavery or all these other crazy things that humans have done to other humans and other animals. Yeah, we always say that in our family and I hope that that day comes as well and that we're able to look back on all this and it seems like a very distant past. And again, I commend you for all your amazing work. Obviously, veganism is on the rise now and there's a lot more access to information now, but when you began following a vegan lifestyle, there really wasn't that. So there was sure no, was I did not know. I don't think I met a single vegan until I was probably 27 years old. So I had 10 years where I never met a single person like me. So yeah, it's great now. Now there might even be one next door. Exactly. So again, I commend you on, on sticking to veganism, even when it wasn't you know easy and trendy and as accessible as it is now. And you're inspiring a lot of people to do the same. So again, keep up the great work. Thank you. Yes. I was vegan when vegan wasn't cool or even before it was a word, I think. Yep, they call me the OG. The OG vegan. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on our episode today with Chef AJ. Chef AJ shared so much great insight on how to overcome emotional eating and processed food addiction. She also shared great information on why carbs are not the enemy and the benefits of following a whole foods plant-based diet. Check out her website, chefajwebsite.com to learn more about her books, programs, and how you can work with her. As always, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch on Instagram at drinkdte. Stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.